It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, what if I'm not good enough for heaven? Coming up in this episode, going to heaven is not for the faint of heart. It requires clear, focused, and consistent dedication to doing God's will. Most of us are basically good people, and let's be honest, we don't truly give up our lives to serve Jesus. If God is love, and He is, what does He do with those that are not good enough for heaven? Now, here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Looking forward to our conversation. Jonathan, what's our theme text for today's episode? Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The vast majority of Christian belief systems may have a problem. What do they do with the billions of humanity who aren't true followers of Jesus, but they aren't terrible people either? These billions try and live a good life by being decent and and kind to one another. Many of these have not heard the name of Jesus in any meaningful way. Can we say that God will destroy them for essentially being born in the wrong time and place? That, That doesn't make sense. Can we say that, well, they'll go to heaven when they die? Well, that doesn't make sense either. Jesus taught us that going to heaven is a call that is difficult and requires deliberate choices. God loves humanity so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, as our ransom. That being the case, what does happen to the billions who are not good enough for heaven? First, Rick, let's establish that. The Bible does teach that Jesus did die for all of these people, even if they never knew him. Romans chapter 5 is one set of many scriptures that show us how all are in fact redeemed by Jesus, not just Christians. Paul begins his Romans 5 reasoning by highlighting how specially blessed true Christianity is. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So We have peace, Rick, with God. <laughs> That's a that's a big deal. You know, that's a that's a very big deal. We have peace with God. Peace with God is not the an easy thing to come to. We means only those who are called by God to follow Jesus. And this is a very, very important distinction because as we go through today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the we those who are called according to God's purpose, and the everybody else. We're going to be going back and forth between them. So this is dedicated to those called out to follow Jesus. So we have peace with God, implying that others don't. So we're going to, we're going to expand that. Next, the Apostle Paul begins to explain how true Christianity got into this amazingly blessed position. So let's go, Jonathan, Romans chapter 5. Let's skip down to verses 8 to 10. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, Rick, this means Jesus redeemed the whole sinful race with his sacrifice. It says, while we were yet sinners. 
So it, it, it makes this point at the very beginning of discussing the we, those who have a, a kind of an extra special blessing. So let's continue with the verse. Verse 9, much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The words much more than transition us to the followers of Christ. We shall be saved from God's wrath. See, there's something very, very specific, and these verses get read kind of quickly, and you'll overlook the details. But to be saved from God's wrath, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, we're talking about time of trouble. Does it mean true Christians don't live through the time of trouble? No, but it means that it, it, you're, you are protected in a very, very special way. So this is building the argument of this tremendous, tremendous blessed position that true followers have. Let's go to verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 10 shows us that the sacrifice of Jesus covers even his enemies. And verse 10 also says much more. For the followers of Christ, we are already reconciled, which means we are saved, delivered, and protected now. And the beautiful thing is, it says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled. So it's not like you're so good. You're not, <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's like Jesus' sacrifice is so broad that he can do that for those who are so far away from God because justice doesn't give us the ability to see God closely and to be in harmony with him. We're going to expand that as we go. So now we've got Romans 5, 8 to 10. Let's go down a little bit further. Paul now is going to lay out the whole journey of humanity and the role that Jesus Ransom plays in it. So he's focused on those called out ones especially, and now he's changing his focus and we're looking at the whole journey of humanity through sin. So Jonathan, let's go to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, sin and death are an inevitable inheritance from Adam. And I don't First. think, I, I, hang on, I, I, just, I just don't think that anybody's going to argue with that. There's no Christian who's going to look at and read that scripture and say, well, that doesn't apply to everybody, because it does. Sin and death is everywhere. Nobody escapes it at any point. So we've got that as the basis in Romans 5.12. Let's go to verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So death reigned even before the law was given, proving the death penalty was upon all humanity. And, you know, you, you don't have as strong a barometer for sin and death when you don't have a law in place, but you still had sin and death. And that's the apostle's point. It was just there. So he establishes that sin, death specifically, was always there because Adam sinned, and God said to him very specifically, in the day you eat thereof, dying you shall die. I mean, it's a very specific consequence, and we have seen it play out in all aspects of everybody's life. Now let's go a little bit further, Romans 50, uh, 5, verses 15 and 16. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, well, the many refers to all humanity according to the previous context. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Well, the many, again, is all humanity. 
the grace of God and Jesus is un, unsevered favor from sinful humanity. I'm sorry, I meant undeserved favor from sinful humanity. They didn't have to be gracious, but they were. And verse 16 says, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So you've got, you're putting this all together, and the apostle is really laying things out, and he calls everyone the many. Why? Because there's lots of them, okay? It's a pretty, pretty simple thing. And he's saying the many are subject to the sin and death through Adam. But he says that's on one hand. Judgment arose from one transgression. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So everybody's included on one hand and then the other hand. It's, there is an equality here. So we have the free gift, Jesus as the ransom, pictured on one end, balancing the transgression of Adam that's pictured on the other hand. Other hand. Death happening to all in Adam would therefore be counteracted by the balance of Jesus as the ransom. This was God's plan right from the start. And I mean right from the start, before the start, it was already in place. Picture a balanced scale where Adam is on one side and Jesus is on the other. A perfect man for a perfect man. Justice is satisfied. It's balanced. And there, that's such an important word when we're talking about the plan of God. And the question is, you know, what if you're not good enough for heaven? And you think, think about this in terms of God has balance in his plan. So there has got to be some kind of clarity when we deal with all of the details that may not make sense that seem foggy. God has balance. Let's move forward with that. Next, the apostle, going to continue in Romans 5, the apostle Paul expands this teaching. He's talking about balance on one hand, on the other hand. He expands the teaching to bring out the key differences in salvation's application. Now, this gets a little bit more detailed, but it's really critical. So, Jonathan, Romans 5, 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, again, who did death reign over? Everyone, the many. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So there's a qualifier here applying to the called out ones. And Jonathan, you spent a lot of time on those earlier verses, Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10, talking about the called out ones. Well, that qualifier pops up here, talking about the called out ones. It shows them being given authority. Well, how can it be much more than the gift of the ransom for all? <laughs> Rick, What reigning over what? What did this verse mean? And so, you know, it talks about the called out ones reigning. And what we will see through Scripture is that they are reigning with Christ. That's why they go to heaven. They're given an extra level of grace. And you, you say, well, much more than just life, you know, after a sin, resurrection after a sinful life. Yes, it is much more. It's much bigger. And, and to be able to be with Christ, that's why being a true Christian is no easy task. It's a, it's a job that requires all of your effort all of the time. So we've got that qualifier there, talking about reigning in life through Jesus, talking about the true followers of Christ. Now the apostle is going to focus, uh, he's going to shift his focus again, and he's going to, to discussing Jesus' ransom relating to sin and not death. He's been talking about death a lot. 
But now it's going to begin, you'll see in these next two verses, it's going to translate from, uh, uh, transfer rather, from talking about death specifically to talking about sin. So Jonathan Romans 5, 18 through 21, we're going to go slowly through these. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, the ransom, there resulted justification of life to all men. So it talks about one transgression. That word for transgression mean, means to transgress. It can be in a side slip or a transgression. And, and the idea of a transgression is you broke the law. You did something absolutely wrong. And it says, and it compares. One transgression results condemnation through one act of righteousness. This is the legal aspect of things. Because that word essentially means uh, an act of righteousness so as to have the force of the law. So Jesus didn't do something nice he did something legally righteous in the sight of God to cancel out the transgression. That's what's being said, spoken of here. All humanity is clearly included in being condemned to sin and death, and we see Jesus legally acting on behalf of humanity. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So now you're talking about the moral aspect for one man's disobedience, to disobey, morally make the wrong decision. You've consciously chosen something wrong. And then the, the counterbalance is the obedience of Jesus, the compliance of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. It's still about all of humanity, and it's now focusing on there being sinners. So you've got the legal aspect that Jesus covers and the moral aspect that Jesus covers because he was compliant. So here salvation is the open door for the pathway to being righteous, to being equitable. Jesus opens a door so humanity can actually approach unto being righteous in the sight of God. This has never happened before. Verse 20 and 21. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more which means the more clearly sin was defined, the more powerfully grace would apply. Hmm. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace or salvation would reign through righteousness, the ransom, to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we look at these verses and we can see a clear-cut picture of how all are covered by the ransom of Jesus. There's a special gift, and we'll expand this further, to those who follow after Christ, but all are covered by it from a legal perspective and from a moral perspective. Nothing is left out. So when we look at this, Jonathan, God's gracious plan for those not going to heaven, what do we have? God's plan right from the start always had salvation built into it for every man, woman, and child who would suffer the consequences of Adam's sin. Salvation through Jesus is for everyone but is not a free ride for anyone. So it's there, it's available, everyone is included in this salvation, but it is not necessarily something that just comes to you without having to do anything in response to it. For those of humanity who are not going to heaven, this is really good news. You have a place. Yeah, you know, it's such a good way to say it. You've got a place. God's plan is equitable, it's clear, and every human being has a place should they desire that place. So right from the start, we can see that God's plan is wiser, more comprehensive, more just than most of us ever realized. 
If God's plan of salvation does include everyone, then how does the Day of Judgment fit into the picture? Well, God's judgment has many parts to it. God judges and tears down the systems of this world in the final time of trouble to prepare for his kingdom. He then judges the people on the day of judgment. Now, here's the key point. There is a difference between God's anger that pulls down the world's governments and the world's systems and the judgment of God on the people of this world. So we need to understand that the two things are different, but they're part of the same overall plan. Who does the day of judgment actually affect? It is specifically for everyone who has not been truly faithful to God up to that point. How do we know that? Well, Jesus tells us that in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour cometh in which all that are in their tomb shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. So you see two very plain, simple statements of difference here. The they that have done good to a resurrection of life, they that have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. Two different things happening, but all are raised. So you got to say, okay, what does that all mean? What role does Jesus play in each of these two categories represented here? They that have done good to a resurrection of life or judgment. He plays a specific role in both, but it's a different role. So let's look at Jesus in relation to they that have done good to a resurrection of life. Jesus advocates for these godly individuals. They are the ones that have, in this verse, they that have done good. And and that's what our theme text actually reflects. Yeah, that's Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So let's go now to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye may not sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, Rick, an advocate here means one who pleads before God on our behalf. Jesus does this for us when we make mistakes and sincerely repent. Continuing in verse 2, And he said, The propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, Rick, what does propitiation mean? So the propitiation for sins is, is, is the right amount. Jesus paid the right amount for our sins, and not and who is our? Our is the true body of Christ, those who are following Jesus and living lives of sacrifice, having been called of God. Not only is he the propitiation, the right amount for our sins, but he's also that right amount for the sins of the whole world. So Jonathan, everybody's included. However, it's a different treatment. The godly, the true followers of Christ, are not judged in that day, in that judgment day we were talking about uh, earlier. They have already been tested during this life. They lay down their lives with Jesus by their side, advocating for them and covering for them and essentially walking alongside of them. So Jesus is our advocate. Well, back to the original question, what if I'm not good enough for heaven? What happens is you don't have an advocate. You say, "Uh uh-oh, what does that mean? Well, hang on, because there is something else. What you will have is a mediator. 
And that is Jesus as well. Jesus will mediate for, in the John 5, 28 and 29, they that have done evil. He mediates for them. The rest of humanity who are not heaven-bound have, will have a mediator in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. Now, desire means resolved. God our Savior is resolved that all men be saved. Back to verse 4. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The word knowledge means everyone will have full discernment of the truth. And verses, um, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So Jesus is the mediator for the everybody else. He intervenes between two parties that are at odds, God and sinful mankind. So you have two parties at odds. You say, wait, God's at odds with humanity? How could that possibly be? And the answer to that is because we are sinful. Remember in the, the Jewish law, what did they have to do to be able to be represented before God? They had to offer sacrifices. They had to follow the law. And those sacrifices, essentially, in a simplified way, were a picture of Jesus. Jesus was the ability, gave humanity the ability, to be recognized by God. So this mediator does sit between two opposing parties. And this only happens in this context, with God being one party and the, and, and the, the world of mankind being the other. This will only happen when both parties have grounds for mediation. Sinful humanity is invited to this mediation table because Jesus paid the price for Adam, which resulted in their resurrection. They are resurrected one by one by one by one, and therefore Jesus mediates them with them before God. Now, God is not ever wrong, but you still have to mediate between sinful humanity as they go through the process and God, the ultimate righteousness being whose kingdom this is all about. So Jesus sits between as a mediator. So the rest of the world gets a mediator. So now let, let's go further with these scriptures because we talked about they that have done evil, uh, John 5, 28 and 29, unto a resurrection of judgment. Judgment's a big word and often a misrepresented word. The resurrection of judgment implies that those raised are out of harmony with God. Because God judges those things that are out of harmony with him. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. So the unbelievers of the world have Jesus mediate for them in their disunity with God. So what exactly does this word judgment mean? Decision, by extension, a tribunal, by implication, justice. And I like the Greek-English lexicon. It says a separating, a trial, judgment. So the word can mean several, have several different shades of meaning. And so we want to be careful here. It can imply a process, a trial, as well as a decision. So it can, it can imply, uh, it can imply the, the, the going through something, and it also can imply the final result of something. This is the word, this Greek word is krisis, K-R-I-S-I-S. And that's where our word crisis comes from. And that gives us a sense. When somebody's in a, in a, in a position of crisis in the, in the hospital, what does that mean? They could go either way, right? Exactly. It's not, it's not final, but they, they're in a very difficult stage. We believe 
folks, now, be, let's be really clear. We believe that this day of judgment is that particular definition, that crisis time definition, a process, a period of separation. Why do we believe that instead of it's just a stamp of approval or disapproval? Because we believe the scriptures explain it that way. So you got a word you can, you can interpret a couple of different ways. So you say, well, which definition? Let's look at the context of other scriptures. The next, we've got, uh, we've got three scriptures here. These next three scriptures are going to give us a clear, clearly reveal the process and objective of the day of judgment. Now, there's going to be three points, one point with each scripture. The first point, God is a keeper of promises, and his will is that all come to repentance. And Jonathan, you already mentioned that in 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 6. But let's look, read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Well, Rick, what promise? The Abrahamic promise found in Genesis 22, 16 through 18. And it says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The part that says the sand, which is on the seashore, refers to the everybody else. So you've got this promise, and, and this scripture says, God's not slow in keeping his promise, but he's patient with us. And why? Because the scripture, 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, that implies that people have a decision in the matter. But that also implies that people have an opportunity in the matter. So you have God setting things in place. He made a promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is how it unfolds that he keeps this promise. So the first point in understanding the word, now this has nothing to do with the word for judgment at this point. This is groundwork, okay? But the first thing to understand is God has a process already in place, and he wants everyone to come to repentance. The second point is where it gets into the nitty-gritty of understanding what that word judgment actually means. The second point, God's judgment won't break people. They will produce a learning environment for them. So his judgments are not designed to break people in pieces, say, take that. They're designed to produce a learning environment. Why do we know that? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 26, verses 8 and 9. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Now think about that. When the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. That shows you the crisis, the process, the development. Learn righteousness. It, it doesn't say that you're zapped and all of a sudden you wake up and everything is righteous and perfect. And you're this very, very good little robot person. This is learning righteousness, learning to, to, to focus your own free choice about choosing the will of God 100% of the time. So there is that. this is a scripture that really shows us that the judgment, the day of judgment, is a day of crisis, 
a day of process. The third point that helps us to understand this even more clearly is that the day of judgment is a day of learning and change. It's a day of change. How do we know that? 2 Peter 2, verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment crisis to be punished. Now, Rick, that word punished means to lop or prune as trees and wings, to curb, check, or restrain. So when you think about pruning a tree, Jonathan, are you deciding this tree is no good, I'm going to cut it up? No, you cut it back so that it'll be healthy and grow properly. Right. The whole point is for that tree to be able to grow, and it's cut back. It's cut back. It's cut back. This is the learning process. Crisis, not final judgment. Jesus, Jesus mediation, remember he's the mediator during all of this, will be acted upon by walking the world through accountability so they'll be able to stand before God forever on their own chosen merits of learned and accepted righteousness. It's a growth process. That's the thing that's so important here. So now let's look at God's gracious plan for those not going to heaven now that we've got all of these pieces in place. God's plan for those who are not the called-out disciples of Jesus has a reconciliatory process involved. Their resurrection to judgment is actually an opportunity to become right with God and includes being able to be brought back to God's favor through the mediation of Jesus. So the purpose of Jesus mediating is to give the world of mankind the opportunity to be made right before God. It's a process. So if you ask, what if I'm not good enough for heaven? The answer is, you have a mediator. So you, you have a place, like you said before, and now you have a mediator. So not only do you have a place, but now you have a method through which you can learn the righteousness of God. See, Jonathan, this gets exciting for those who aren't going to heaven. So the day of judgment is a good day. It's a long period of time set aside to bring God's human creation to full repentance. What does the reconciliation process look like for those who are not good enough for heaven? Well, the understanding that God is just, loving, wise, and powerful helps put this day of judgment reconciliation process in order. The comprehensiveness of God's character and plans tell us that the work of Judgment Day is the work of systematically bringing a race of humans lost to sin into complete harmony with God. So that's where we've been. So now we want to look at what does this reconciliation process actually look like? What, what is it made up of? To be reconciled to God means we are to be reconciled in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Now, that's, that's a very simple statement. You've all heard that before. You know, be true in your thoughts, words, and deeds. Uh, it sounds like a Boy Scout thing or something, you know? <laughs> but, but there is power in that because that covers who we are. So let's look at how this reconciliation process touches our thoughts, words, and deeds. First, let's look at the thoughts and reactions of humanity. Jesus taught his disciples to here and now be responsible for their thoughts and reactions. So now, as we go through thoughts, words, and deeds, we're going to compare what Jesus taught his disciples to do here and now and what the Day of Judgment will ask for everybody else, from everybody else later. So here and now, 
This is what Jesus taught his disciples about thoughts and reactions. Let's look at Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So the thoughts and reactions of those called out to follow Christ are pretty simple. You do things the right way here and now. You know better because you've been taught better, because you have the scriptures, you've got God's spirit. So rise above your human thoughts and reactions and do things that are godly instead. That's hard, but it's something that's, that is required. That's our responsibility. That's what we're responsible for now. Jesus, on the other hand, for the everybody else, for those who aren't going to heaven, he warned everyone else that their thoughts and reactions now will have an effect on them later. This is big. Let's listen to carefully. Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. Let's let's do 20 to 22 to start with. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, Tyre and Sidon were were known as being seats of great evil. They were known for generations as being not good places. You don't want to go there. You know, there's a couple of places in the world you don't want to go. Tyre and Sidon, if you're a righteous person, you stay away. So you've got that sense that Jesus is saying, woe to you, Chorazin and, and Bethsaida, because you've had me. They didn't. They would be in better shape than you are because you have me. You have the righteousness. You have God's will being unfolded right before you here and now. So we've got that piece. Now let's go further, because he he even gets a more dramatic example here in verses 23 and 24 of Matthew 11. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So Sodom was specifically destroyed because of its inherent evil. The cities that Jesus um, did miracles and they rejected him as Messiah will have a harder time than the sin-filled evil cities in the day of judgment. And that's, that's telling. That's telling. So when we talk about our thoughts and reactions, what Jesus is saying is when we have, when we, we, we th- look, we observe things, and we, and we create conclusions inside of our minds. We may never tell that conclusion to anybody, but it's a thought. Jesus is saying, the thoughts in your mind in this life, and he's talking about those who aren't going to heaven, but the average everyday person who may not even know Jesus, they are going to be a source of accountability for you later. So what he's saying is, each of us should strive to be the highest, best human being we possibly can. He's not asking all of the everybody else to be sacrificial at this point in time. He's not asking them to, 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 to follow and read their Bible every day, but he's saying what you think as a human being is going to follow you, and it's going to have to be dealt with. So we've got that piece, our thoughts and reactions. They're 
a big part of the Judgment Day. What about the intentions and words of humanity? So thoughts, and now we're going to look at intentions and words. Let's start with the called out ones. Jesus taught his disciples that their words and intentions intentions should be sure in their godly purpose. Matthew 5, 37, a very short but powerful verse. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these are evil. So he's saying, be clear in what you stand for. Talking to the true followers of Christ here and now. Be clear in what you stand for. Stand for truth. Don't waffle. Don't vacillate. Be clear. Jesus is not expecting the world to be that way now. But he tells them, he warns everyone else that their careless words spoken now will, in fact, bring responsibility later. Same thing as previous. He's saying, be mature human beings. Matthew 12, 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure, what is good, and the evil man brings out his evil treasure, what is evil. Well, Rick, the intentions of the heart come first, and the words of the mouth come next. And it doesn't matter who you are, Jonathan. We create patterns in our humanity. And we oftentimes can choose to choose a higher road, but we just don't. And Jesus is essentially saying, this is something you're going to carry with you into the day of judgment. So folks, if you're not a true follower of Christ and you're listening here and thinking, oh, you're telling me I can have a resurrection, everything's going to be fine. The thoughts of your, your mind, the intentions, the words that you speak carry weight later. So be careful what you say. Let's finish with verses 36 and 37. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, think about the Pharisees that stirred up the people. They all shouted, crucify him. How humbling it'll be for them to seek forgiveness after being an enemy of Jesus. So the bottom line is, be very careful of what you say or it will come back to bite you. And I want to stress that the words that we speak are not just the words that come out of our mouth, but in this day and age, they're the words that we type or the words that we send out in social media. Those words, folks, count just as much as the words that you speak. So if you feel like I can say anything I want because I got this, this thing that kind of hides me, think again. Later on, we are accountable for those words. And if we speak foolishly and, and harmfully, yes, you're going to have to give an accounting for it. That's just the way it is. So we've got the thoughts. We've got the words. What about the deeds of humanity? Well, let's start with the called out ones who are on trial for life right here, right now. Not in the judgment day, but now. Jesus taught his disciples that the works of their lives must be in line with godliness. It was a really simple thing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You notice, Jonathan, that in, in, that, in that scripture, Jesus isn't talking about the things that you say. He's just saying, let your light shine so they will see what you do and be able to say that's somebody who has a, a mission of goodness and godliness and righteousness. 
That's a powerful thing. And Jesus tells us as Christians, this is the way your life should look. Your life should be a shining example of me. Now look, that's a hard thing to do, and I confess, I do not come through on that always, because sometimes you get tired, and sometimes you, you, you choose the wrong way to act, all right? But it doesn't mean it's not our responsibility to get up and try again. That's right. So that's our responsibility as true Christians now. What about everybody else? What about those who are not on trial for life right now, but have the day of judgment coming? Well, he warned everyone else that their present deeds guess what? We'll bring responsibility later. There's a theme here. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's a powerful statement. Now that, that is a, I think it's Psalm 4, 4. I can't remember what the exact Psalm was there, but it, it, it's a quote from the Old Testament. Repay every man according to his deeds. Jesus says, that's going to happen. So what we do, folks, doesn't go unnoticed by the Heavenly Father. And you can think, well, you said I'm going to get resurrected no matter what, so I can do whatever. Sure you can, but you're going to pay for it. You may be buying yourself decades and decades of trouble later because you're carelessly establishing habits. Now you need to be careful. And further, this is such an important point that the Apostle Paul also quotes the same Old Testament scripture, Romans 2, verses 5 to 10. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who will be perseverance in seeking good for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selflessly, selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. All right, so let's pause right there, because he says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you store up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. That's, a, that's not a good recipe, incidentally, okay? If you're working that recipe, you might want to throw it away and start over. Okay, start with some <laughs> repentance. <laughs> I'm serious. This is, this is hard stuff. Selfish ambition does not and not obeying the truth. This is where you get into trouble and it's going to come back and you're going to have to be accountable. So think before you act, no matter who you are. Verses 9 and 10. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why does Paul say to the Jew first and also to the Greek? He's saying everybody's included in this. Nobody gets away with anything for free. So we can see that we're talking about being prepared for the reconciliation process that's going to be coming in the future. That's what Jesus mediates the world for. He mediates for the world between the world and God as the mediator so they can reconcile to him. And it's like, and it's like rehabilitation. Rehabilitation is, is a hard thing. And, and Jonathan, I know you had an experience with rehabilitation with, with this. Absolutely, Rick. Let's get practical. Nobody likes rehab. <laughs> Re rehabilitation takes work and is painful. Yeah. My wife has been going to physical therapy for muscle, uh, muscle injury rehab. And some days when she comes home, she's so sore, she can barely move. It hurts. The pain kills. But she told me not to say that. <laughs> but, but think about it. After the rehab is over and the healing takes place, we are relieved and thankful the pain and work for a short time 
was worth it. So you go through that rehab, and it's and you, when you're in the middle of it, you're going, oh man, why am I doing this? And you have to be able to realize that there's something on the other end. And what we are suggesting, folks, is that we don't want anybody's rehabilitation to be harder than it needs to be. And you can take care of your thoughts, take care of your words, take care of your deeds now, whether you're a Christian or not, to angle toward righteousness and give yourself a better place to start because you're going to have to rehab. And that's going to hurt tomorrow. I promise you, it's going to hurt tomorrow if we don't put it in perspective. So, so looking at all of this, God's gracious plan for those not going to heaven, Jonathan, what do we have? True Christianity is accountable for their thoughts, words, and deeds in this present age. In the same way, all of humanity will be accountable for their thoughts, words, and deeds after their resurrection. For those who will not go to heaven, the lesson is that they are still accountable for what they think, say, and do here and now. So if you ask, what if I'm not good enough for heaven? You can't get away with anything. You will be accountable. You will. And it's in the same way that Christians are accountable now, except that there's no sacrifice involved in, in, in the future. Christians are, are asked to watch their thoughts, words, and deeds and live a sacrificial life, giving up their will. The human, uh, humankind is going to be able to expand their human will in relation to God's glory and gifts in the kingdom. And we're going to get to that in the next segment. But you will be accountable. You can run, but nobody hides from God Almighty. That's just the way it is. It's reassuring to see how God's plan leaves no stone unturned regarding each and every human being's experience. So, not going to heaven doesn't get anyone off the hook. But what is the end result of their reconciliation? See, that's a, that's a good question. Bible prophecies are filled with answers to this question if we would just take the time to read them. They show us process, they show us development, they show us testing, they, they show us results. The bottom line is these prophecies reveal how God's plan for every single human being will play out. It's a righteous, glorious, loving, life-filled plan. And if that's not enough adjectives for you, well, we will we'll add more as we go. But Jonathan, this, this, this segment really, really brings that to life. Okay, Rick, let's back up and see how to get there. First, let's put things in order. We have a prophecy that shows us all about this process. It explains destruction, rebuilding, personal accountability, promise and peace for those who are not going to heaven. All right, so we've got this prophecy. It's going to be in Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to read 28 to 31, then 33 to 34. But it's going to divide, it's going to show us this process, like you said, Jonathan. It's going to put things in order. So first, part of this prophecy, and this prophecy is spoken to the Jewish nation. All right, we understand that, but we also understand that its principles extend through the Jewish nation to the rest of the world of mankind in the Day of Judgment. First, this prophecy in Jeremiah 31, uh, let's go to just verse 28 at this point, is going to give us a, a little bit of an insight into this time of trouble. As I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Okay, break down, overthrow, destroy, bring disaster. That's, those are not good things. 
but they're part of God's plan because they, are, they set the table for something greater. So we've got this time of trouble that this prophecy starts with. So you've got that as a basis. Next in this prophecy comes the personal accountability. So Jonathan, let's go to 29 and 30. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. So that's a kind of a funny thing. Eat sour grapes and your teeth are set on edge. It just, it just doesn't feel good on your teeth if you eat a sour grape. That's, that's the point of it. And, and it's a very simple illustration for a profound truth. In life now, we often inherit, inherit the, the, the consequences of others' sins. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, you can see that God would, would allow punishments to go to the third and fourth generations for what somebody did. And so you look at that and say, well, that's not really fair. You know, it just, if, if I could only stand on my own, it would be entirely different. Well, what this is saying is in the day of judgment, guess what? You will stand on your own. You mean you can't blame anyone else, Rick? No, you can't, Jonathan. No matter how hard you try, it won't work because it will all be on each individual. And there is great justice and inevitably great mercy in that. So we've got the trouble and destruction that comes first, then the putting in place of personal accountability. Next, this prophecy in Jeremiah looks at God's promises. Now let's look at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 33. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What a powerful promise. The idea of working through the accountability. You can't blame anybody. But what if? Let's just say, what if, okay, I'm going to blame myself, and then I'm going to do the work through the mediator that's been put in place for me, Christ Jesus, so that I can be righteous and in, in, in line with God? What does it say God will do? I will put my law within them, and on their heart, I will write it. I mean, think about having God's law written in your heart. That means it's there to stay. This is quite a transformation going on within them, isn't it? It's a beautiful transformation, and that's the key. You have a place, you have a mediator, and this is showing that opportunity for those who don't go to heaven. But there's more. There's more to this. We've got the trouble, we've got the accountability, we've got God's promise, and now, finally, we've got what everybody wants, peace. Verse uh, 34 of Jeremiah 31. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So the, you get a sense of conclusion here, and it's going to be, nobody's going to have to say to anybody, hey, do you know the Lord God in heaven and, 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 our, and our Lord Christ Jesus? Because they're going to say, well, of course we do. Of course we do. It will be everywhere. And the beauty of this is because of that reconciliation, because of that accountability, because of having the mediator in place, because of all of these things, that day of judgment is going to produce a place where God forgives their iniquity and remembers it no more. And Jonathan, think about when God says, I'll never think about your sins ever again. What peace that will give 
every man, woman, and child. It's incredible. And that's what's in store for those who are not bound for heaven. But you have to go through the process. Thoughts, words, and deeds. Accountability. Putting it all in place. Following along. So let's go on to another, another prophecy. With personal accountability, and we've really talked a lot about that, firmly in place, and we're talking about in the day of judgment, those who don't go to heaven will be thoroughly engaged in the process of making their reconciliation permanent. And this is an important aspect of this, permanent reconciliation. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 10, but let's just take 5 through 7 to start. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabia. The scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. So, Rick, this is about the healing of the earth. It just shows a beautiful picture. It shows a picture of physical, earthly harmony in place. And folks, look, this is a Bible prophecy. God doesn't put Bible prophecy in place just to be poetic. He puts it in place so we can understand and have hope for the future. This is a prophecy of great hope. And like you said, Jonathan, this portion of the prophecy is about the earth's healing. It gets better. Let's read now verses 8 through 10 of Isaiah 35. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it'll be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And Rick, this is the healing of the people. So you've got the healing of the earth and the healing of the people, and it talks about this highway, the way of holiness and how it will be a place to be encouraged to move forward because righteousness reigns in the earth. And you can't get it, just like you can't go get away from misery now. Do you ever notice that? No matter where you go in life, misery finds us. Just don't put the news on. <laughs> right, right. Don't put the news on. Don't get onto social media. Don't do anything. And then you're going to get miserable because you're depressed because you're all by yourself. So <laughs> the point is that it's difficult Think about how difficult it always is here, and think about how righteous it will always be then. That's the new context in which to do this development and this accountability and this growth. So we've got the environment for this development all set in place here. It's going to be firmly under the control of the glorified Lord Jesus. And that's it. And again, another prophecy that just helps to put this in place. And, and Jonathan, this prophecy has got some, some, some thoughts in it that just that give me shivers when I think about it. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Let's do 1 to 3 to start. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry, nor lift up his voice, nor cause it to be heard in the street. A bruised reed will he not break, and a dimly burning wick will he not quench. He will bring forth justice in truth. So let's pause there, because this is a picture in the day of judgment. And it says that Jesus, as the great ruler here, will not break a bruised, break 
a bruised, bre- uh, bruised reed, I'm sorry, and a dimly burning wick, he won't quench it, he'll encourage it. And then it says he will bring forth justice in truth, real true justice, as well as real true compassion, working together for the rehabilitation of all humanity. That's what the Day how of Judgment... Mer- how merciful is that? He, he wants everyone to come through, doesn't he? Everyone. And, and it's set up for success. Right now, the world is set up for failure. But then the world is set up for success. Verse 4 tells us this. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has set justice in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Most everyone wants justice on the earth, right? Yeah, they do. And this comes, but this is true justice. This is pure justice. This is godly justice, not our own fabrications and opinions of justice. So we've got all of this. You can see that this process is beautiful. Once the thorough testing and process of reconciliation is complete, there will be a final judgment. And Jesus reveals this in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Well, wait, wait a minute. Didn't we already go through the day of judgment and how much rehabilitation hurts? There's more? What now? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, wait, you sure about this? And yet, you know, it reminds me of uh, my, my grandson, Dominic, when he was about three years old and he'd be eating dinner and he wouldn't want to finish and he'd say, I just want to be all done. And, you know, that's kind of what you're saying. I just want to yes. be all done. I don't want to go through with this. But you know what? This is a really important aspect because this is the final test. And everything, when you're talking about eternity, you have to be sure. So that's what the, the parable of the sheep and the goats really is about. It's the final test that gives you eternal life. So Matthew 25, we're just going to just just touch on this parable today. Matthew 25, 31 and 32 to get started. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So this is at the end of the process, and he's going to be doing the separation process. The, the, the parable explains how those who have been reconciled and thoroughly dedicated themselves to living righteously will be blessed with eternal life, and they're represented the sheep in this particular parable. The parable then explains how others have just simply gone along for the ride. In other words, they've played along, they've acted righteously, they've enjoyed the blessings of resurrection, they've enjoyed the blessings of righteousness and peace and harmony, but they did not thoroughly dedicate themselves to personally living those blessings. You can enjoy it, but they didn't make it their own. This is a valuable parable, Rick. Um, because we haven't talked about the sheep and the goats for a while, coming up in several weeks, we will be focusing on the subject titled, Will I Survive God's Final Judgment? And we'll, we'll break this parable down in much, much more detail in that podcast. But for now, Jonathan, let's go to what Jesus says to the goats in this parable, to those who didn't make righteousness their own. And there was a conscious choice not to. Matthew 25, 42 to 46. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also, who answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, 
to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These who go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this has been a test, and now this is the final exam. Yes, yes, and this is the final exam, and it says eternal punishment. It means death, and we're not going to get into why, but the scriptures are very adamant about that. It means death. But the point is, Jonathan, they didn't respond. They thought, you know, I'll respond when it's really important. If, if somebody really big and important needs help, I'll help them. But Jesus' response is, you didn't do to the least of my little ones. You didn't make it your own. And this is reminiscent of Adam living in the Garden of Eden. The bottom line was to be, to be dedicated to the clear guidelines that God gave, and you live. Disobedience always in God's plan eventually brings death, and that's what this is showing, the final test, the final clearing out of anyone who is just going along for the ride. Once this great work of reconciliation is fully completed, God and his plan are given all glory. And this is magnificent. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Let's do 24 to 26 right now, then we'll do 27 and 28. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, and when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. You know, it says the last enemy to be abolished is death because that's the final death of those who are not compliant. And incidentally, Satan and all of his minions will fall into that category of that final enemy of, uh, under death. They're, they're being destroyed. Then what happens is Jesus does something very, very, very significant. Verses 27 and 28. For he has put all things into subjection under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So Jesus does his work. He finishes the reconciliation process. He dots every I. He crosses every T. And then he hands that perfected, perfected work back to the Father, and all glory is given to the Father. What a great, spectacular, unbelievable, motivating, happily ever after you see here developing in scripture. So Jonathan, as we wrap this up, God's gracious plan for those not going to heaven one last time. God created the human race to be a part of his eternal family. He made humanity to dwell on the earth. While Jesus' true followers do go to heaven, the other billions have the destiny, should they choose it, to dwell in the peace, safety, and righteousness of God's eternal kingdom. So what if I'm not good enough for heaven? You are blessed. Yeah, you are blessed. And, and you know, that, that's, that's such a very significant part of this whole thing, is that God's blessing is not limited to those who are called of Jesus now to go to heaven. It is expanded to all of humanity, but all of humanity must play their part. The accountability is going to be strong because the reward is eternal life. And to earn eternal life, we have to be eternally dedicated to God and his righteousness. Shouldn't be that hard because God's righteousness is the greatest thing the world has ever seen. The peace and harmony and love and justice and caring is going to be beyond anything any human being has ever witnessed or experienced. This is what happens to those who are not good enough to go to heaven. They are blessed. Think about it. 
Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, is the gospel obsolete? Has it run its course? Is it just no good anymore? We'll answer that question next week. 